Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights, the podcast for the CyberEd.io learning community. Our goal is to bring cybersecurity practitioners the latest and most relevant education and training to upskill and dive deeper into topics that matter in today's modern cybersecurity world. A good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the managing director here at CyberEd.io. And uh, on today's podcast, we have the pleasure of talking with Alex Zeltzer, who's the CEO and co-founder of nsure.ai. Uh, that's lowercase n, uppercase s-u-r-e dot a-i. He's, uh, Alex is a digital technology advocate and pioneer with 20 plus years of uh, IT, R&D, sales. He's an active angel investor and has worked both as a founder and CEO multiple times. With Ensure, he's leading the charge against chargebacks and helping global digital goods providers uh, secure their high-risk transactions from fraudsters. So welcome, Alex. It's a real pleasure for us to have you on the show. And thank you very much, uh, Steve. Uh, pleasure is all mine. Well, thank you. Let's jump into payment fraud. Encompasses a whole range of deceitful activities and, you know, fraudulent parties are the objective is to gain unauthorized access to funds or work a transaction, what have you, and has been a continuous challenge for as long as I've been in this business for both traditional and digital commerce. Can you, uh, can you give us kind of a, a payment fraud 101? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, payment fraud is uh, is something that happens when someone is using your payment information, your credit card information, your PayPal information, your bank account information to try and steal goods online. Right? That's the that's the gist of it. And there are various ways in which people can do that. They can either gain access to your payment information through uh, you know buying lists on the dark net. They can take over an account you have either whether that's a PayPal account or a bank account. So there are various ways in which uh, the fraudsters can gain access to uh, payment instruments that, that they can use. And when we say unauthorized, it means that it's not the actual owner of the payment instrument that is being using that. And as a result of that, that's fraudulent. And eventually the merchants uh, have to deal with the chargebacks that uh, that relate to that. Uh, what we don't know as consumers, because as a, as a consumer, we're always protected when someone is using our credit card we see a, you know, we see a, a line on our credit card statement that we don't recognize. Uh, we call our issuer. We, t- we we tell them, guys, we don't know that transaction, right? Or we click the button on the uh, on the web interface and say that's not us, right? We didn't do that. And then we always get paid. We always get our money back. What we don't know is who actually pays the bill. And the reality is that if it's a brick and mortar transaction. In, and, and payment fraud happens in brick and mortar as well, then the banks need to take care of that. It's either the issuing bank or the acquiring bank that need to take the, the, the liability for that. If that was a what we call a hard not present transaction or something that has happened anywhere that is online, digital, sometimes even uh, 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 vending machines where there's no one to verify the card, then the liability lies with the merchant, which means if someone is using your PayPal information or credit card information to uh, steal a pair of shoes on, you know, at Nike on uh, on the Fifth Avenue, then it's the banks that take the liability. If someone is uh, doing that on Nike.com, it's Nike.com that takes the liability, and and that's what payment fraud is all about. Yeah. Okay. 
that's uh, pretty clear. And it has seemingly gotten far worse lately, and uh, banks have pretty much, uh, I think it feels as a consumer that they've kind of tightened up their filters and screens for what might be anomalistic or uh, unusual transactions. Is that my imagination or is that reality? No, no, I think uh, it's reality. And I think it's, um, it, it shows that the, the, the fact that you're getting that, uh, uh, that means that it creates friction for you because when they approach you about something there, it's not, not necessarily a real transaction that was fraudulent. If the case was that every time they approach you, it's a real fraudulent transaction and every time they need to replace your card or do something about it, then it means that fraud has gone significantly higher. What they do because fraud did go higher is they create a lot of false positives. Every time they call you and there's, you know, everything's okay, it's actually a false positive on their system. And what you're seeing now is, let's call it the inability of a lot of the antiquated uh, uh, payment fraud uh, uh, prevention platforms uh, dealing with new types of fraud that emerge. Yeah, and then what, what new types of fraud would include cryptocurrency, I imagine, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, on crypto, there are different elements, right? There are different elements uh, around crypto. Uh, and and our our uh, experience on crypto and on NFT is on what we call the fiat to crypto side, right? So where you yeah where you use a, a payment instrument that is using normal currency, right? The current the currency that uh, that we all are familiar with, US dollars, or euros, or or whatever, to buy uh, uh, cryptographic uh, uh, payment uh, instruments, uh, Bitcoin or an Ether or NFTs on uh, NFT marketplaces. And and the amount of fraud that uh, that is generated there is is immense. We're seeing huge amounts of fraud there, and and very sophisticated fraud because because the uh, the attractiveness of crypto is very high for the fraudster. Uh, if you think about it from a fraudster perspective, um, primarily the fraudsters that do this as a business, what they do is they you know they go on the darknet, they buy a list of stolen financial instruments, and then they need to turn that into cash, right? Because that's their return on investment. So. And and for them, imagine the difference for them between you know uh, uh, buying and reselling. Once they got these these uh, payment instruments, they need in order to turn them into more cash, they need to buy and sell things. And and you can imagine the difference between buying and reselling a thousand Nike shoes or a thousand iPhones and buying Bitcoin and immediately uh, turning and reselling it. Uh, and it's completely anonymized. There's no way to track the transaction, and it creates a huge incentive for them to attack crypto exchanges, which is why crypto exchanges so, see such a significant fraud pressure. What is the current market value, uh, if you happen to know this, of cryptocurrency globally? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, the number changes every uh, every hour, right? Yeah. Uh, every minute. I think that, uh, you know, from our perspective, what we're looking at is is this transact these how much uh, fiat, how much standard cash is turned into crypto on a yearly basis. And today the numbers are staggering. It's somewhere between half a trillion and a trillion dollars a year. Wow. It's staggering numbers. It is staggering, yeah. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Gosh. And and so uh, how vulnerable is the the digital wallet, you know, as part of the scheme here? I mean, as part of payment, uh, as part of the fraud scheme. Yeah, so so 
again, if we think about it from the fraudster perspective, what they're looking for is they're looking for uh, uh, products or services or value that can be transferred immediately. That has no, you know, that it's it's not uh, delivered on a truck, but it's a uh, it's bits that go into a, a wallet or an email or a, or a text message, and that they can. Uh, they can use in order to transfer the value somewhere else or can resell that value so that they gain the cash value for it. That's what the fraudsters that do this as a business are looking for. Um, so crypto is, is you know, is one uh, immediate suspect. There are others, right? Uh, uh, companies uh, that sell gift cards are usually exposed to significant fraud pressures because of the same reason. Because you can buy a gift card, you get it immediately, it's a number. You can turn around, put it on eBay or on Craigslist and sell it. Yeah, and 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 it's very easy. So what happens to wallets is exactly the same thing. If you have a wallet that you can load with a, a with a reversible financial instrument, with a credit card or with a or with a bank account or, or or with a PayPal account, and then you can take the funds from that account and put them in a different account, it creates the opportunity for fraudsters to do exactly that. So what they would do that they would create an, a a wallet, they would load funds into the wallet get the funds in there using a stolen credit card, for instance, and then transfer these funds immediately to a PayPal account that, you know, that is completely untraceable and, and you know, uh, turn that into a prepaid debit card or or whatever, and they're gone. And that's, So there's no, no, there's no controls, I don't want to say regulatory controls around the transfer, for example, of of the cryptocurrency into fiat currency um, at that point? I mean, anybody can do that at any time. No, no. So there are many, many regulations around it, but because the incentive is so high, fraudsters find ways of uh, overcoming that. So for instance, on the crypto side, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, crypto exchanges today employ KYC, know your customer procedures, right? Know your customer is a, is a term used in, in the financial industry. Yeah, basically, from a you know from a from a consumer perspective, it's uh, you know it's when you were asked to uh, take a picture of yourself plus your driver's license side by side so that they can see that you know that Steve is Steve. Yeah, uh, for example, and and what we see today is that uh, even though a lot of the crypto exchanges and uh, and the financial institutes employ KYC when people uh, create accounts, um, because the value. For, from a fraudster perspective is so high. Uh, and we see a lot of the fraud that is generated by accounts that were completely verified through KYC. And when you look closer into that, you see that these were uh, people that were persuaded to go and create such accounts through either social engineering or simply, you know, uh, we call them mules, right? They were persuaded to create that account and sell it to someone. And, and that someone is a fraudster. They're using that account in order to use their credit card to get funds in there, funnel them somewhere else. It was KYC that there's someone else's name and they're gone immediately. How prevalent is that? I mean, you know, we we all understand that, you know, phishing and so forth is a very um, popular <laughs> entry point yeah. for bad guys. But, but we never hear any, you know, and business email fraud also, but we never hear anything about about what you just described is that I mean is that a do, are people doing that a lot? Yeah. So the reality is that uh, today we see more than seventy five percent of the fraud of the chargeback fraud is uh, that arrives at the crypto exchanges being generated by accounts 
that have gone through KYC. Wow. Then what, yeah. what's, what's the work? Well, then obviously the, the workaround is well known among the bad guy community, but- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, so very, why, why haven't, we, uh, there's no way to fix that from our side? On the KYC level, though, there is, once you are, uh, once you're trying to solve the problem through identity verification, you're going down a rabbit hole that is impossible to, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a, a cops and robbers game that you cannot win. Impossible to win. Yeah. To win that is, is, is by tracking different patterns and identifying these anomalies. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's what companies such as Ensure and others do. Um, very similar to uh, what has been done, let's say, a decade ago in, in, uh, in uh, cyber. Um, a lot of the uh, DDoS attacks that, uh, DDoS, sorry, is a distributed denial of service. Right? It's a wave of seemingly legitimate individuals uh, that are actually uh, representing one orchestrated attack that happened somewhere. Um, this is something that uh, the cyber industry has been coping with for, for decades. And we're now seeing in payment fraud uh, being uh, uh, perpetrated on a daily basis. And, uh, and you, yeah, you know, we've, we've got about uh, 12 minutes left here. Uh, so I'm conscious of that. I think we should, let's devote the 12 minutes to how you guys use AI because that KYC issue, I'm assuming you you have a product that addresses the vulnerabilities in KYC or no? So we, we don't really address the vulnerabilities in KYC. What we do is we do something different. What we do is we identify the anomalies and the behavioral patterns that are created by these orchestrated attacks by the machines. What, we, uh, what we've uh, came to, uh, to realize is that in industries where the value for the fraudsters is so high, what they do is they create machines that attack these services. And uh, these are industrialized attacks. It's not a person sitting in a coffee shop, you know, and, and typing like uh, with a hoodie, like you see in the pictures. It's really, uh, you know, it's a business. And they have, uh, they have machines and servers and, and they deploy code that attacks these uh, types of sites. And, and the only way to identify that is by identifying the group of people. And we're primarily utilizing AI for uh, behavioral analytics for that. When we say behavioral analytics, a lot of people think, uh, you know, you use behavioral analytics to, to identify that Steve is Steve, right? We, we see the way you act and we can relate that, you know, to other sessions that, you've, that you have done. And, and we can see that it's the same behavior. But that's not what we do at, uh, at Ensure. What we do here is we look for patterns that allow us to connect different people or different uh, sessions into groups of sessions in order to be able to identify them as the source of the attack. And, and I'll give you, you know, I'll give you a, a simple example of that. Let's say we're, um, we're looking at, um, at, a, at a crypto exchange and there's a, you know, there's, a, there's a point that we look at how long you hesitate before you decide what kind of cryptocurrency to, to, to purchase. And let's say you, you, know, you have uh, two options, uh, Bitcoin and Ether, and uh, you take, uh, we see a consumer coming in and it takes him 13 seconds to, uh, to decide whether he wants to, uh, uh, to invest in, in Bitcoin or in Ether. There's not a lot we can do about this, this one session. Now, a second later, someone else comes in and they hesitate for 13 seconds as well. 
Now that we can raise an eyebrow and say, okay, we, we don't know. And, but 15 seconds later, 30 people that have done that and hesitated for, for 15, for 13 seconds, you can identify that there's a group here by the fact that they behave similarly and then decide whether that group is, is fraud, fraudulent or not. And then be able to cut the, the, the scale of the attack by, you know, by, uh, by an order of magnitude before it becomes uncontrollable. So that, that's, that's the behavioral analytics that you're, that you're kind of monitoring or, and looking for is, uh, that's just one factor. I assume there's plenty more. Exactly. So there are hundreds of thousands of such, you know, simple elements. And because there are hundreds of thousands of them, the only way that you can work that is through machine learning models, right? It's impossible to put in rules that would, uh, that would uh, work and create a decision at the end of the day on whether a certain, a certain transaction is fraudulent or not. The only way for that to work is to drive all of that data through machine learning uh, models that, that we've created that would eventually weigh the risk of every transaction. That sounds so. It's really discriminative AI, then not not generative AI, right? That you're yes, it's a it's algorithmic. I mean, it's it's an old math model, is it not? Yes, you can say to a certain degree, right? It's definitely not generative AI, right? It's uh, it's not something that creates something. It's mm -hmm. something that tries to understand a pattern, right? It's like the AI we see that. Uh, you know, that looks at pictures and can tell you what it is or looks at pictures, uh, looks at MRI and can tell you whether, you know, there's a tumor or not. That's the type, that's what, that's what we do. We look at everything that happens on a certain site and we can identify, hey, there's a group of people here, they look fraudulent. And we can, first of all, identify that there is a group and then say that the group is fraudulent. Yeah, so in that, to go back to the simple example of 13 seconds, for for, for instance, what after you, you know, so what does your engine tell you? Is it a normalization of the thirteen second decision process, and then it becomes kind of like your Bayesian, or well, becomes kind of a foundation um, in the decision tree, or and then anybody that is either above or below that becomes suspect. Is that kind of how that works? Very, uh, you know, very. I, I think in a, in a high level. Generally, yes, but but the reality is a bit more complicated than that because what you need to do is you need to compare that to the normal behavior at that period of time. You need to identify the anomaly on that on that specific behavior compared to the normal behavior on the site, because it could be that thirteen seconds is a is an average number. You know, everybody hesitates somewhere between ten and fifteen, uh -huh. and thirteen is not a big deal, right? It's but if everybody is, uh, you know, is taking a decision in two seconds or in fifty seconds, and you find a group that does that in thirteen, it can help. Now, if the only thing you're looking for is how long they hesitate, then obviously you're not going to catch a big chunk of the fraud, right? But if you're looking at hundreds of thousands of such very small elements, and and more than that, it's compound because it's not only looking at a certain element. It's you know, you look at three or four different features that are compounded together. Uh, or three or four data elements that are compounded into a feature uh, and you look at them over time and you look at them uh, uh, and, and then you classify, right? It's a classification problem at the end of the day from a, if, you mm. know, from Max, uh, a perspective. Yeah. Uh, and without revealing, you know, more, too much of your secret sauce, 
but to help our audience better sort of understand this, is there, can you give us a couple of other examples um, that are similar to the decision process, the 13 second element? I mean, you're, you're, as you say, there are literally hundreds or thousands of these things. What, what are other things that you might monitor? So there are there are other there are other elements. Uh, some of the elements are are more you know trivial in nature. So for example, are you uh, uh, do we have a group of people now that are copy pasting their passwords? Right, one person that just copy pastes maybe increases the risk to a certain degree. But if there is a group of people and it's an anomaly, then it's you know that it could be significant. Now it's very easy to circumvent because you know good fraudsters would. Uh, very easily simulate that you're keying in a password and not copy pasting it. But sometimes these type of features are helpful in identifying fraud. And again, they're only helpful, not if you look at them on a per transaction basis, but if you combine them together. Um, so that could be uh, an interesting uh, an interesting uh, view. It doesn't have to be a password, right? If you if you have anywhere that you need to put in data, are you copy pasting or are you uh, or are you keying it in? And uh, that's, uh, that's one element. The other element uh, could be uh, uh, length of sessions in general, not just looking at, uh, um, you know, at, uh, at uh, how long you hesitate on a certain thing, but looking at the entire time it takes you to come in and come out of the site all the mm -hmm. way through the transaction. And, and, and again, it could be that the feature that, uh, that, uh, that triggers it is the combination of how long it took you to hesitate plus how long was the entire session. Right, yeah. it's, it's a combination of things that that would create that. But these are the types, you know. If you're looking for uh, uh, for uh, uh, simple examples of what are the things that you can look at from a behavioral perspective, then it's these type of things. Yeah, sure, I I get that. So thank you. Um, and I, in three minutes, you got to jump to a customer call, which is great. How many customers? Can you reveal anything about your uh, growth? So I can say that we're monitoring uh, billions of dollars um, like on an annual basis. We're processing, which means we're providing decisions on over a billion uh, a year, which is uh, which is becoming a significant number. Yeah. Okay. And how long have you guys been in business? Three and a half years. Uh -huh. And was much of that time developing the uh, and refining the algorithms and the you know sort of the whole predictive so analytics puzzle. So the, the reality is the previous company I uh, I was together with my partner here uh, was a gift card marketplace. That's where we actually found the, uh, were, were exposed to the problem. And uh, that's where we started building the tools. And when we saw how more are, how more accurate and how much stronger the tools that we've created are, we decided to spin it out. So the, the, the tools are actually based on technology that we started developing in 2014. So they've been here for a while, and the team uh, is the same team that worked that in our previous company. We've acquired the team and the technology to start it up. Well, yeah, it sounds very cool. I'm I'm uh, I'm happy you're doing that. I, <laughs> it's a big it's a big problem. It's a really big problem. It's a huge it's a huge problem today. A huge problem today. Yes. So again, this is Alex Zeltzer, who's the CEO and co-founder of Ensure. AI and Alex was kind enough to spend uh, half an hour of his time with us today, and we appreciate that. And good luck with your customer call here in a minute or so. And and thank you again for being for being on the show. 
Thank you very much, uh, Steve. It's really my pleasure, and I uh, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. And uh, best of luck, Alex, to you and and uh, to our audience. Thanks again for spending your 30 minutes with us today, and uh, hopefully it was uh, valuable information and uh, a little bit of education around all this stuff works. So until next time, this is Steve King, your host, signing off. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Insights. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook or send us an email at social at cybered.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybered.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, stay safe and secure, and we'll see you on the next episode of Cybersecurity Insights.